I think one of the most poignant uh, passages in all of Paul's writings comes at the end when, when he says, at my first defense, nobody stood with me. And you read the story of a man like that, and it's, it's so stunning, it's, it's so legendary, as it were. And, and then you start seeing what he went through and, and, and the idea that God might call some of you to that same ministry is, is almost unimaginable. But that's exactly what we have here. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't have it perhaps to the same degree and in the same way that Paul had it as an apostle. But we do have the ministry that comes because we know something that we didn't know before about this new covenant. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. And then he starts talking about some of those. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he makes a really interesting statement in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled. We could say it this way, since our gospel is veiled, because our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, and, and, and verse 3 is re referring back to uh, a statement made in chapter 3 about Moses going up to the mountain and coming down with his face transformed by what he saw there, and, and literally putting a veil over it so that the fading away of that would not be as obvious. And so there are, there are things that are veiled, and, 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 and the gospel is one of those things. It, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, Paul is saying this, the gospel that, that you have embraced the gospel that you believe, the gospel that, that you are, are ministers of, this new covenant is not understood by unbelievers. And we talked briefly about that last night when we made the observation that you and I have come to believe radically unbelievable things. I mean, when you sit next to, uh, and, and, and we have them here in this room, I mean, here in this room are highly educated people who have been very successful in, in various endeavors of life. Some of you have, uh, have gone to very great lengths and worked very hard in, in the pursuit of education and training and preparation for the skill that is demanded in the calling that God is, uh, has given to you. And you meet people like this on a plane. And, uh, and you sit next to them, and, and, and during the course of that flight, it's interesting as they begin to find out that you are a believer, and then you start talking to them about the fact that, that Jesus Christ was actually born of a virgin. And some of them, it's just tradition. That, that's what they believe their whole life. They really haven't thought about it. But if you start talking to someone who's thoughtful, that is a very difficult thing for them to understand. Or when you start talking to highly educated people about the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. And they just sort of look at you and, 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 and you can just see it in their eyes. They, it, it, it's not condescension because they're trying to be polite, 
they do not know what to do with a person in the kind of education that is available even in our own high schools today. What do I do with a person who believes something as, as, as unbelievable as that? And that's what Paul's talking about. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And then he explains why this is so in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, now who's that? It's the serpent. It's the dragon that Dr. Nizelli referenced yesterday. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, and there's a reason for the blinding, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that word there is not just Jesus' last name. That, that's his title. That's who he is. He is that anointed, appointed champion that we meet all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and we've been tracing his story throughout the entire Bible, and all of a sudden, we find out who this anointed, appointed Messiah, Christ, is, and his name is Jesus. And the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God, has been hidden, it has been veiled from those who do not believe. And then Paul says, now that's a problem because that's exactly the message we're supposed to proclaim. We're to take this message to people that don't believe it and, and the big problem is they can't see to believe. And so what do we do? We, we have this message that we proclaim. It's not ourselves, but it's Jesus and the, the, the Messiah as Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. So think about, think about the dynamic that Paul has just put there. We, we are ministers by the mercy of God. God, in his mercy, has granted us salvation, and not just salvation, he has made us ministers of a new covenant. And, and the truth of that covenant is wrapped up in the identity of the anointed, appointed Messiah named Jesus, who we have come to know, and, and the people all around us to whom we have been sent as ministers are blind and cannot see that message. They cannot recognize that glory that is in Christ. They can't see it because the God of this world has blinded them, and that is precisely our message. We don't have any other message to give them. We, we don't have any other way, and that puts it in, in respect then. So how do we get a blind person who, who has been completely alienated from truth and in his darkness and doesn't have the ability to see the truth about Jesus, and that's the only message we have for them. How do we get it to them? And Paul said earlier in the chapter, we refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You say, well, that, that, that doesn't seem to solve the problem. And that's why Paul ends the paragraph in verse 6 by reminding you about something that God did at the very beginning. Notice what he says. For God, who said, and then he quotes or references 
probably one of the most familiar lines in the scripture, let light shine out of darkness. And you're connecting that to what? When did God do that? In the first creation, correct? So there was a moment in time when through a direct act of speech, illustrating the unbelievable power of God's word, God said, let there be, and whatever followed was, let there be light. And there was. By the way, have you connected? Think about what Dr. Nacelli taught us last night. Have you connected that theme to the fact that that you were taken out of darkness and now you are, you once were darkness, Paul says, and now you are not just in the light, you are what? You are light. How did that happen? The voice of God that called light out of darkness, that same voice summoned you out of darkness. And now you are light as, as God's new creation, as, as the work of God's hand in new creation, that's you. The same God who called light out of darkness has shined in our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And here's what happened. God spoke a word And through that word, the word you have in your hand, this new covenant, the Spirit of God caused your eyes to see, to pierce that darkness, and you saw the truth about Jesus. Does that make sense? That's that's every one of us this morning. You say, well, what does that have to do with Psalm 119? Well, let me take you to a text that I think uh, sort of mirrors this very clearly for us. Go to Psalm 119, verse 30. Uh, uh, Hang on a minute, let me find it here. I'm looking for the text that's, uh, here it is, verse 18. Sorry, I I, I have all my text in yellow. (laughs) Andy was walking by this morning and I had Psalm 119 open and I have a lot of yellow in it and you said, Uh, something about the Holy Spirit writes in yellow. So here it is in yellow. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may what? Behold, that I may see wondrous things out of your law. So all of a sudden now you have two texts that speak of the ministry that the Spirit of God does in the heart of someone to bring them to faith And then not just to bring them to faith, but to bring them to understand the incredible things that are in the word of God. That's why I asked you at the very beginning, have you ever found yourself in a place where you're looking at the word of God and you ask yourself, how did I miss it? And the real question is, how did I actually come to see that today? How did I sit here and look at a text that I've read many, many times And all of a sudden, as somebody opened up the Word of God and explained it, or as I was thinking and connecting dots, this came to light. And the answer is, behind all of that is God. God is the one who is bringing that light. God is the one who is opening your eyes so that you can see the idea there of wondrous is jaw-dropping, so that you can see jaw-dropping things in the scripture. 
And I would suggest to you that Psalm 119 is one of those jaw-dropping places in Scripture. Many, many years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, hear a message on Psalm 119 that, that totally changed my whole thinking about that psalm. And what I'm going to say today is, is, uh, is my own sort of culmination and, and, and orientation of, of things that came out of that message, but, but it, 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 has, it has stood me in, in good stead over the years, and, and I believe that God has answered that prayer in my own life over time, and I believe that God will answer and does answer and is answering that prayer and that desire in your own heart, that as you open up the text of Scripture, that, that God would open your eyes so that you would see what he really put there. Not what's invented, not what's sort of hidden, what's, what's plainly there, that, that your eye would be able not just to read the word, but to actually comprehend the incredible thing that, that God is doing in weaving together a story that is stunning. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Let's pray, shall we, and ask God to do that. Father, I pray that you would help us as we come now to this portion of your word and that, Lord, you would give us wisdom and grace and that we would experience in a small way this morning even the truth that we're talking about, that you indeed would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. Lord, you have helped us see the beauty of the glory that is in your Son and to recognize that he is our, our high priest. He is your anointed, appointed champion. He is your Son. He is our God. And Lord, we have come to see that. You've already opened our eyes. You have given to us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue that growth in us through your word. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, you know, is the longest uh, psalm in your Bible, 176 verses. And you'll notice that they are arranged in your Bible in a little bit of an unusual way. If, if you look at the top of uh, the sections, you find little words. For example, the first word uh, in Psalm 119, right above verse 1, is the word aleph. And then uh, right above verse 9 is the word baith. And you keep going down, and there are 22 of these words. Do you know what these words are? They are letters in an alphabet. They are letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And they are strategically placed throughout the psalm, in, uh, and they divide the psalm up into 22 sections that are made up of eight verses each. Each of the verses, and this is something you may not know, each of the verses and each of the sections. So for example, if you look at section number one, the word Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's spelled out the way it sounds, all right? So Aleph would be the first word of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look at verse one and verse two and verse three, all the way down to verse eight, the first word of every one of those verses begins with that letter. And then you go to verse 9, and the word there is baith. And, and so verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, all the way down to verse 16, the first 
word of each of those verses starts with that letter. And it's that way throughout the entire psalm. You say, well, that's interesting. Uh, What's the point? And the point is this. Somebody arranged this psalm in a very unusual way and with great care because they wanted you to be able to comprehend it and they wanted you to be able to remember it. And so whatever is being discussed here is interesting. Now think about the way we use language like this. If I say to you, I'm going to give you the ABCs of biblical theology, what what are we talking about? I'm going to give you the what? What's another word for that? I'm going to give you the ABCs. I'm going to give you the what? I'm going to give you the basic principles. So last night we sat in a session and we got a, a wonderful overview and then we got some basic principles that are intended to help us sort of understand what biblical theology is and to whet our appetite for it, correct? So we got the ABCs. But what if I said this? This morning, I'm going to give you the A to Z on biblical theology. Now what am I saying? Now we're, we're going to really sort of have a more comprehensive look at this thing. Well, I would suggest to you that Psalm 119 is the ABC and the A to Z of something. So whatever is being talked about in this psalm is going to be unfolded. And as as you start reading the psalm, you're going to notice something interesting. The psalm is written in the first person, which means that there is someone telling you this story all the way through the 22 sections. So one of the things we would immediately observe about Psalm 119 is that, is that it is the story of something or someone that's being told by that person. And, and when you meet him in the first stanza, he's a young man. And when you meet him in the 22nd stanza, he's an old man. So he's telling you the story of what? He's telling you the story of his life. So what is the story of this man's life? And so if you start looking at stanza one, you notice that he starts off by describing a group of people that have an unusual standing before God that he has come to see. He has come to observe that there are a group of people who are different, that there are a group of people who seem to have divine favor on their life. This is not talking just about the outward blessing that's on their life. There, there, there's something about these people that he has observed that, that communicates to him they stand approved before God. Notice how he puts it. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. And then he comes to see why this is so, that... Lord, they they enjoy this status before you because you commanded something. You commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And then he looks at all of that as a young man and he says, now I want to be like that. You see that in in verse 5? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. All right, see the picture? Here's a group of men 
This is, this is written by an Israelite, so he's looking at the nation around him, the other people who are in this nation that belongs to God, and he is observing that in the midst of this nation, there are a group of men who seem to have an unusual blessing and understanding and commitment to the Torah of God. And, and they, they, they enjoy the blessing of God in some evident way in their life that is recognizable to him. I don't want you to walk away saying or assuming that it was material wealth or possessions. It may have been, we don't know. The, the psalmist is simply saying, I recognize that this group of people had an unusual commitment to understanding of practice in this Torah of God, and they had an unusual relationship with God because of that. And I concluded why this was so, because you commanded that your word be kept, and they have been doing that. And I want to join their ranks. And so beginning in verse 9, he, he, he starts thinking about, now what is this going to look like? How do I become that kind of a person. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. What is it gonna require? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from, wander from your commandments. And then here's an important verse. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight. I will meditate on your precepts. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Man, here's a young guy. He's, he's figured it out. He's committed. He's made his promise to God. He's, he's discovered that the Torah of God is the way to blessing and, and, and the guide to life, and he is going to learn it, he is going to know it, he's going to retain it, he's going to do it, and he's going to delight in it. And he marches out, and the first thing he hits is opposition. Look at verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for all of your rules at all times. And then he starts introducing people that apparently are against him. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander away from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt that's what he's experiencing. For I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statute. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And then it gets even worse. Man, he's found outside opposition to this, and he's determined to keep dust himself off, and off he goes. And then it gets worse. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told you of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous work. Sounds like this is harder than he initially thought. Notice verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put away false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies. Lord, I've done this. 
Don't let me be put to shame. And then verse 32 is a very interesting verse to me. I will run in the way of your commandments, but I, I don't have the capacity to do this until you do something. You have to enlarge my heart. I mean, if you've ever done anything with athletics that involves sustained running, you know that simply having the desire and the opportunity is not enough. You know, when you get out on the football field and, and all of a sudden you have the ball on the 20-yard line and there's a hole that opens up and you take off through that hole and you discover by the 30-yard line there's, there's, there's nobody in front of you. You've got a full open lane to the end zone and you take off running and there's a whole team chasing you. There's nothing like running out of steam on the 20-yard on, on, uh, uh, line, on the other, other team's 20-yard line, 20 yards away from the, from the goal line. And you can have all the desire in the world. You can have all the, the hope in the world. You can stretch as hard as you can, but until your body provides oxygen and strength, you aren't gonna go that last 20 yards. And that's exactly what the psalmist is recognizing. I want to run in the way of your commandments, but Lord, you are going to have to give me an enlarged heart. You are going to have to give me the capacity. And you can take every one of the stanzas and you can sort of unfold them because they give you a different window into what the psalmist experiences as he goes all the way through this journey that he began as a young man to walk in the way of the Lord and to walk in the way of the Torah which, by the way, is the same journey that you're on. And right in the middle of it, in verse 97, comes a stanza that has to do with how you feel about the text that we've been talking about all week. Notice what he says in verse 97, that there is an incredible confession that the psalmist gives. And that's really the first thing I want you to notice. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is, it, is the, it is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. Do you feel that way about your Bible? And, and let's just make sure that we, we sort of understand what the psalmist is saying. This is, this is more than just fond affection for the Torah. This is more than just sort of a, a religious, national, or even pious affirmation. That is our Torah. We are Jews, and, and God gave to us the oracles of God. God gave us his oracles, and, and we got them in tablets of stone, and we got them in a book of covenant, and we got them in a holiness code, and we got them in a priestly code that, that Moses wrote all down for us, and, and this is our Torah. This is our law of God. This is our wisdom. And so, yes, I love the law of the Lord. It, it's who wouldn't? Every Jew loves the Torah. So this is more than just personal affirmation or fond affection or even religious zeal about the nature of this. This is even deeper than personal affinity. This is more than, than just owning your own personal copy of the Torah that you respect and that you, you sort of treat differently than you treat other books. You don't just toss it 
uh, on the floor. You, you, you keep it somewhere and you guard it and you, and you pull it out because you're going to church on Sunday. You're coming on maybe on a Sunday night or a Wednesday. This is, this is much more. The psalmist is actually using a term that goes down to the very roots of who he is as a person. And he is saying, I value this Torah. I don't just affirm its truthfulness. I value it for life. I, I, I need this. I, I, I want this. I yearn for this. This is the idea of, of, of receiving, embracing, rejoyfully keeping all that God has said. Now, the psalmist is going to do a second thing in this stanza. He's just made a very bold affirmation. As I have decided to start on this journey, this Torah walk, if you will, I have asked God to open my eyes so that he would show me wonderful things out of his word. And I've come to love this word. Now, what is the evidence of that love? So how do you know when somebody actually loves the Torah. You could go, for example, to my home, and I have a library that is full of commentaries and religious books, and the last count that I had, there's a section uh, in my library for Bibles, and I, I think I have over 50 copies of God's Word. By the way, that's stunning, isn't it, that one person can have 50 copies of God's Word? Not too long ago, hardly anybody had a personal copy of God's word. You realize the treasure that you have as a believer living in this day and age where we have copies of God's word so readily available to us. I, and, and I'm not even counting the multiplied copies of God's word that I have on, uh, available to me electronically. And so you might come into my library and you might see that section of, of my shelf and you may count up all those different Bibles and you might say, man, Sam really loves the Bible because I have so many copies of it. Or you might come to the conclusion that because I, I, uh, I preach and teach and use the Bible when I go to class, I carry the Bible with me every day when I go somewhere. You, you might say, okay, man, he really loves the Bible. But you know, there's, there, there's something here that the psalmist points to that is the evidence of his claim that he loves the law of the Lord. And you know what it is? Look at verse 97 again. Oh, how I love thy law. And then he gives this confirming evidence. It is my what? It is my constant meditation. He is doing something with this law that he loves. And it's more than just Owning it, it's more than just talking about it. It's more than just carrying it. It's more than just affirming it. There, there, is this, there is this deep sense in which he is ingesting the word of God. This is the active, thoughtful contemplation of all or even a portion of God's word for the purpose of understanding what God has said so that I can conform my life to what he wants. And the psalmist says, I do this with God's word all the time. It is my constant meditation. 
Now, what happens to a person who does this? I mean, what is the benefit of someone like the psalmist in the first psalm who, who doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, right, the Torah of God, and in this law does he what? Meditate day and night. There, there's, there's another example of what the psalmist is talking about in, 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 in slightly different words. It is, it is my delight, and I meditate in this word day and night, not, not, not like 24-7, but I, I, I'm constantly thinking about the word of God throughout my day. That's, that's the idea here. What's the benefit of all of that? And the, and the benefit of all of that is found in verses 98, 99, and 100. And you can sum up the benefit this way. The benefit of all of that is wisdom. You can see that uh, in verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Look at verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand, I discern, that's the idea, more than the elders, the aged, for I keep your precepts. So, so the benefit of whatever the psalmist is talking about is this, that, that the meditation, the constant, intentional, thoughtful contemplation of all or a portion of what God has said in his word has given to him an invaluable resource. It has given to him a possession. It has given to him wisdom. And this wisdom makes him more skillful, more capable than even the craftiest of his enemies. It's interesting, yesterday as uh, Dr. Nacelli was taking us through the, the, the theology of dragons and serpents, the very first text he read to us was the text in Genesis where the serpent is described to us as the most crafty of all the beasts. And here in Psalm 119 is a statement about a wisdom that will give you the ability to be wiser than even that enemy. It makes a man wiser than his enemies, it gives him more insight than his teachers. And it makes him more discerning even than the most respected elder in his community. Now, where does he get this wisdom? And the answer to that is in verse 102. I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. You have taught me. And in order for God to teach you, there has to be a response. There has to be a receptivity in your life, but then there has to be a response to your, your teaching. And, and you can see, beginning in verse 102 and going all the way to the end of the psalm, that the psalmist isn't just acquiring knowledge, he's actually applying truth. And he does it in two ways. Notice what, what happens in verse 101. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. So there's a, 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 
a, a commitment here that happens as he gets this wisdom and this insight and, and, and this perception, this discernment, that, that he knows now as he's walking along the path where to put his foot. And, and God says to him, don't put your foot there. I mean, how many times have we found ourselves somewhere where, where God told us not to be, and as we look back to the path and we look to where we are, we realize that, that we started to put our foot off the path sometime back. And the psalmist is saying one of the benefits of the constant, thoughtful, ongoing contemplation of, of God's word in your life is this, there will be a constant reminder in front of you about where to put your foot and where not to put your foot. You can see that in the next verse where, where he intentionally retains and remains on the right path. I do not turn aside from your rules for you have instructed me. You have taught me. You say, well, what, what, is the, what is the culmination of all of this? You know, there's this confession and, and, there, and there's this, this wonderful evidence. There's, there's this benefit, this, this incredible benefit of wisdom that comes. And, and, and that wisdom is very practical. It, it keeps our feet from the wrong path. It, it keeps our feet on the right path. But there's, there's one final thing that happens, and you'll see it in verses 103 and 104, and that is this, there is the cultivation of right spiritual responses. There is, there is the ongoing cultivation, the, the deepening of right spiritual responses. Last night on the way home, uh, Pastor Brent's son Andrew and I had the joy of riding in the back seat of the car together. And, and uh, while, while Pastor Brent and Dr. Nacelli were having this amazing conversation about biblical theology in the front seat, Andrew and I were having an even more important conversation about weightlifting in the back seat. Because this last time I saw Andrew, he didn't look at all like he looks now. He can bench press me. So I'm thinking, how did this kid get this strong? So I'm like asking him all these questions about that. So like, what did you eat? And he's pulling out his calculator. I'd eat these many uh, grams of protein and and so like what kind of, ex he's like giving me all these exercises, incline bench, decline bench, straight bench. I have no clue. I'm just going, uh-huh. But, but somehow in that conversation, he made an interesting statement to me. I want, I want to say it to you. He said, a lot of people get into this and they go for like a month and they get on this diet and they go and they they work out, and at the end of the month, they expect to have all this benefit, and it doesn't happen, and, and they give up. And I'm like, I'm not saying this to him, but I'm like, man, you just got in my head. So very innocently, I said, so how, how long does it take to kind of get there? And he said, well, it takes about a year. How long does it take on a spiritual side to get there. Where this law that you affirm as God's truth, this word that the Spirit of God has used to open your eyes so that you can see wondrous things. 
I mean, I'm just, I'm just giving personal testimony here. Yesterday, I sat in, in a session, and I listened to Dr. Nacelli, and I sat there, and I thought to myself, I've never even thought about this. How, 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 how could I have read the Bible and taught the Bible and not thought about this? And, and he makes it look so what? So awesome. You're like... And it's like, he's like up here, you know, here, okay, one, two, three, four, five, you know, just, and you're like, I could go do that? Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trace, uh, uh, he did serpents, I'm going to do dogs. <laughs> and then you start going, ah. Uh, and, and you're like, okay, this is going to be good. By next week, I'm going to have like the whole theology of dogs in the scripture done. And, and six months later, you're not even reading your Bible. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize this awesome, beautiful word is available to us, but but it is going to require of us the ongoing, consistent use over an extended period of time. And over time, something happens. God, through that word, begins to change your tastes. Notice what he says God shapes our tastes in this way. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. I mean, folks, honestly, how do you explain an individual who for 25 years of their life wanted nothing to do with the Bible at all? I mean, the last thing on earth, they would rather go to the dentist and have a root canal than read their Bible. And then they get saved. And they start reading their Bible, and you meet them five years later, and you open up their Bible, and it's full of notes, and, and it's, it's underlined, and it's marked, and you know that something has changed in this person. It changes our tastes. And it changes the way we feel morally about things. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate, I reject every evil or every false way. How did this person go from being a person who loved the participation uh, in evil and, and thrilled and, and, and just lived for the weekends when he or she could go out and do all of the things that God is sending people to hell for. And then you meet them and their life is radically different. What are you going to do this weekend? I can't wait. We're going to have a church retreat on Friday night. It's going to go all day on, on Saturday. And then we're going to have an awesome service on Sunday morning and another one on Sunday night. I can't wait. And, and their office mates are going, oh, okay, and oh, have a good weekend. What? And they're like, that person is totally different because all they can think about is church, 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 church. Hey, we got a bonus from the boss. It's awesome. What do you get with your bonus? I'm buying a boat. I'm, I'm so excited about this bonus. I'm not telling my wife one thing about it because I'm going on a golf vacation. And then it comes to this guy, and he's like, I'm so glad I got this bonus. Our church has got a building program, 
and I have been praying. I'd like, I'm going to give my entire bonus to the church. What? What changed? And the answer is this. This book doesn't just change our eternal destiny. It changes our everyday life. And that's why the text matters. And that's why Psalm 119 is such an incredible story of God bringing about change in everyday people and in everyday person just like us who would come to the word of God with the same request that you have and that I have, Lord, open my eyes that I would see wonderful, jaw-dropping truth that will change me. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for this word. I pray that it would be an encouragement and a help to your people. Thank you for those that have taught it to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have of teaching it to others. Make us faithful ministers of that word. And Lord, may that word minister faithfully in our lives so that we would live in faithfulness to it. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.